You're listening to Speaking of Stories, a podcast where authors meet to talk about themselves, their books, and their view of different parts of life and society. In this episode, Jenny Nordberg, a Swedish investigative reporter based in New York, who covered how girls grow up dressed as boys in gender-segregated Afghanistan. Would you like to climb trees? Would you like to be outside more? Would you like to ride in the front seat with your father? And of course, this five-year-old girl said, yeah, that's what I want. Talks to Meg Wolitzer, a novelist from New York known for her book The Wife, about a woman forced to confront the sacrifices she's made in order to achieve the life she thought she wanted. We know the phrase bad boy, but we also know the phrase good girl. The reverse we don't know as well. Coming to you from a studio in New York, Chapter 1, Girls Who Wear Pants. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Stories. My name is Meg Wallitzer. And I'm Jenny Nordberg. And right now we're sitting in a podcast studio in New York, and it's it's kind of springy outside, although as is the case with New York, the snow on the ground is kind of gray and dirty. Yeah, I know. I was super cold for about a week, and my heaters are still on full blast, so I'm sweating inside my apartment now, and then when I go out, it's a relief for me. Me too. I've got a kind of Swedish sauna thing going on in my own apartment. You imagine that that's the Swedish sauna experience. <laughs> Am I? Do I have it wrong? Have you ever been to Sweden? I have. I loved it. I I was in Stockholm the summer before last. Ooh, with the, your publisher? No, just on my own. I was um I had been to the Edinburgh Book Festival and my husband and I went to uh Sweden and Iceland just for fun afterwards. I I had a great time. That's so nice. But I did not have a sauna. So I have one in my apartment clearly just You do? No, well, just the heat. Oh, okay. So it's nothing like a real sauna, correct? You know, Swedes do have that. Like if in a fancy apartment in Stockholm or if you're in the far north, that's essential for survival. Oh, it sounds great. I loved it. But New York apartments, it is very hard to control the heat. They are really overheated generally, right? It's an ongoing experiment. That's how I think of it. Yes. Well, I... I... Very happy living in New York, and there's a lot going on right now. And we're both in the city. We're both in the city. It's absolutely great. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really happy to meet you today and very, very eager to exchange ideas about our books, which are very different from each other, but I feel like you must be a kindred spirit. Yeah, why are we here? Do we have anything in common? This is about writing, and it's about uh, gender. It's about the patriarchy. It's, it's about totally women. about the patriarchy. I, when you talk about gender, though, so, like people might, oh, gender. Like, oh. That's a real 80s word I, right. from classes that I took in college. I don't know if you studied You're like, over it. gender and sexuality. Uh, you know, those were classes, big classes in university back in my How own. do you describe your, 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 do you have a genre or do you have a... Well, I don't like to say literary fiction because it sounds a little sort of snobby in some way uh fiction you know fiction is sort of like to draw you in and you find out what it is through reading it rather than i think through describing it how mm-hmm. about you do you describe yourself your work in a particular well way? i have a much more pretentious title oh, <laughs> speaking okay. of snobby I'll get some tips from you <laughs> yeah. no no um well when um when you say that you're an investigative reporter, that oh. sounds like you have something big going on. Um, I'm just that... going to go telling people I'm a neurosurgeon. I want a little <laughs> respect. <laughs> yes. It took a long time for me to even um, dare to call myself a journalist when I first became one. So 
I was trying to lay low about that, but now I'm taking on the big shoes. I know, think you shoes. absolutely deserve it. And you went to journalism school in New York? Right here in New York, at uh, close to your apartment on the Upper West Side at Columbia. I used to work for Swedish Broadcasting, the public service network in Sweden, uh, which is all about, you know, um, the the the. The, the fourth estate and, the you know, um, scrutinizing the government. And then I had this idea after 9-11 when everything became about terrorism that I needed to somehow learn to do investigative reporting internationally. And mm-hmm. then I, I I read on the Internet that Colombia was, uh, as everything in America, the best in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually I made my way there. Um, did Did journalism school prepare you for what you've done and this amazing story that we're going to get to shortly uh, in your book? I think so. I mean, the, the, the main purpose of journalism school in Sweden and here, and I've been to both, I think is to um, expose you and introduce you to other more senior journalists who are your teachers. Mm-hmm. And those are the people you then aspire to you know, be like, and 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 hopefully they'll they'll recommend you for a job. And it's almost like you you're introduced into this inner elite circle, which may or may not be beneficial in the end anyway. But um, yeah, and then you learn the, the the language and 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 how it's done. But I think nothing can really prepare you for coming into a completely new environment and then trying to figure out what's going on. Well, I I've been reading a lot about immersive journalism lately, and when I read your book. The Underground Girls of Kabul, I felt also that you had really penetrated the world that you described. And and it was like that book, um, very human, because you really got to know the characters in the story. Um, Before you talk about it, I, I just wanted to sort of say for listeners that the book is about this phenomenon in Afghanistan in which girls are dressed up as boys when they're very young, so that they can live their lives more freely. But also, I think, uh, so that their families can have respect. Uh, is, would you say that that's an yes, accurate way that's of presenting a, a it? Big important reason for it. So, yeah. So you're in Afghanistan. How did you discover this story and this subculture? Well, I was in uh, Kabul, um, my first trip to Afghanistan in 2009, and I had um, I had covered the the war and the 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 um, what what was called the war on terrorism for a long time. Um, from the outside and from here uh, for almost a decade. And I was wondering what was going on uh, with the issue of of, of women and women's liberating women. And you know that whole thing that we were sold also that was going to happen to Afghan women um, and we were going to take care of it. Um, So I was there for um, more of an exploration to do a documentary. And I walked into the apartment of a female parliamentarian in Kabul um, to talk to her about women's rights. And as it turned out, she had to go and take a phone call in the other room. And I uh, was left in the living room with her two twin girls, her two daughters. Um, And I knew that she had four children in total. There were two girls, um, 10-year-old twins, and then there was a middle child and a youngest uh, son, a five-year-old son. Um, And... uh, the twins and I spoke uh, because they knew a little bit of English, um, and it was very basic. It was like, "What's your favorite color? What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, what do you want to be?" Uh, right, exactly. They said to me uh, that um, they asked me how old I was and uh, why are you not married? You're so old. They they had some commentary too, 
And uh, then all of a sudden, one of them said to me, you know, our brother is really a girl. And I said, uh-huh, yeah, personal pronouns and things are strange in Kabul. And, and the other one said, no, she's our sister. Um, and I said, okay, just moving right along. Um, and what's your favorite food? Um, and that's how, that's how the story began with uh, the older sisters telling on their younger sister who was disguised as a boy living in this family. And the mother, who's the parliamentarian, how did she explain it to you? I mean, I know the answer, but our listeners don't. Well, I, I, I eventually met their little brother, or so I thought. Um, and this was a child who looked completely like a boy. It was a little, a little kid in, in spiky short hair and, yeah. and, and, and pants and a denim shirt. Um, who resembled his sisters for sure, but to me was clearly a boy with a more of an aggressive body language and um, you know, having all those masculine traits that you can still have as a child. And I thought to myself, is this is this a boy or a girl? I don't know. It's a child. And then I decided that it would be just a weird thing to bring up with a mother. So I didn't say anything. I just conducted the entire interview with her talking about the things I had come to to, uh, to ask her. And then eventually she said, you know, we dress our youngest like a boy, right? And I, I did that thing in, <laughs> that I think of as show no emotion. Swedes mm-hmm. are very good at it, by the way. And I just looked at her and I said, uh-huh. Why is that? And then she began to, um, in a very matter-of-fact way, s- explain that, I, this was a problem for me that I only had four daughters and I didn't have a son. This is a very strict patriarchal society. If you don't have a son, it is, it's a problem. You're not only seen as, as weak and vulnerable as a family, uh, but you are, in fact, because there's no, um, there's no one to take care of you when you get old. There's no one to support the parents. Um, you will have no one to carry on the family name or to inherit the property. It's very embarrassing also for, for a husband who, whose wife can't have a son. Um, and the boy is what counts. The, the, the son is celebrated. The girls are seen mostly as a burden on the family. They will eventually be married off and, and go off and live in, with other families. So um, in my work as a politician, this was, uh, this was hard for me. And I was constantly questioned uh, about why I, why I claim to be able to do things in politics, but I couldn't even produce a son for my husband. And it was not only, not only were we shamed, but it, it created actual problems for us. So um, I proposed this to my husband um, about our youngest girl, Manush. And uh, we, also, we also took it to her and we said, what do you think? Would you like to, uh, would you like to ride a bike? Would you like to climb trees? Would you like to be outside more? Would you like to ride in the front seat with your father? Um, would you like to be one of the boys? And of course, this five-year-old girl said, yeah, that's what I want. But what was so interesting, I mean, and the whole book is just wonderful, I want to say. I loved it. It was very, very absorbing and very, very sad, um, but gripping the whole way through. Thank you. Is that it seems to me that there, even if people in, say, a village know that there's a family with a child who is being disguised as a boy, it's still better than if it were a girl, right? I mean, it's still sort of accepted in some way that this goes on? Yeah, I mean, the way I describe it and, and, and the way I came to think of it is that it's 
sort of the, the don't ask, don't tell of Afghan yes. society, because everybody yes. knows about this and everyone knows that it exists. But at the same time, it's not something that you speak about openly. And it is, in fact, an act of, of a passing, much like uh, in the actual don't ask, mm-hmm. don't tell, when you have to pretend something that you're not in order to to function in this environment, in this in, in this very strict segregation that exists in Afghanistan. It's accepted when it when it concerns children. Once a, a girl reaches puberty, she becomes of age. She comes of age in the sense that she should get married and produce children, ideally sons of her own. But before then, you could almost say, or you could say, in fact, that there's more fluidity when it comes to gender in Afghanistan than even in our societies when it's very important, you know, with the the pink and the blue and who's what and all that. It doesn't much matter until you you come of age there, Uh, which is, again, another contradiction because girls and boys are brought up in very, very separate ways in Afghanistan because boys know from an early age that they are about to have all the power and the girls will have no rights. So that's very clear even when you hang out with children there. I just think for a girl who's being raised as a boy, how confusing emotionally that must be. And you deal with the emotional consequences of this, or at least you try to talk to people about the emotional consequences of it, because you have this power for a while, but you know you're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like uh, Cinderella, when the clock strikes 12, you're going to sort of reverse Cinderella, Cinderfella. You're going to lose all of that, and you're going to have to become a second-class citizen again. Uh, That was you know, really painful to me to read. I, I'm i the mother of sons. And actually, when and my successful first, Afghan yes, woman, I'm so pride of your village. <laughs> well, but when my first son was born here in our progressive life, somebody said to my father, who, and this guy was the grandfather of daughters, of, of sorry, of girls, uh, somebody said to my father, you got it right the first time. And oh, I thought, wow, like amazing. even here. So we're talking really, I mean, while you're describing a very extreme and dramatic phenomenon in Afghanistan, of course, you know, we look around the world and there are so many ways that we can see patriarchal effects, right? Um, how, as a journalist, uh, just as a little aside, as a female who happens to be a journalist, um, do you feel echoes of that in your in your own life and in your work? Finally, we're on to me, my my favorite topic. The the um, this was all just a sort of elaborate yeah, way of getting yeah, back yeah, to yeah. you. I mean, I've always tried to be one of the boys in my profession. Um, and if you you know, once you enter the world of journalism, and then even into investigative reporting, into foreign correspondence, all that stuff. Well, it's, it's a male. It's traditionally it's a very male, very masculine, and and with a sort of honor culture built into it. And as a woman, you don't easily enter into that uh, with uh, you know short skirts and you know a very feminine uh, take. So, and or maybe I could have. I just wasn't brave yeah. enough. But so I w- made my you know I made myself into one of the boys, and I tried to be tougher and and more resilient and and made a bit make point of that because I also did not want them to see me a, as a girl. So there's a way in which this story about these underground uh, girls is something that I think we as women sort of in a man's world really feel, or at least I do, feel great pain reading this story, that it has to be this way. I mean, it's such an extreme example, this corner of the world that you're writing about. But... Um, what about the psychological effects on these girls who become boys for a while? 
when the the the, the book I think gets really um, into the really juicy questions of how gender is formed and sexuality and and, and all those things. And I spent um, quite a bit of time with women who had had this experience and then gone back to being women, so to say. They had become mothers, they had gotten married, and yet that lived in them, those years of, of freedom, as they, that's how they described it, and what that did to them. And there were, I'd say, two, roughly two categories. There were women who had experienced this as fairly young children, and they spoke about it as something very positive, something that, you know, empowered them, something that made them feel like their minds and their bodies were were equal to that of a boy's and it made them confident mm-hmm. and it's something that they carried with them for the rest of their lives and i you know quite a few of these women rose to become politicians and activists and 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 very educated and sophisticated including women including your uh, member of parliament right exactly yes. and then there were other women who said right away that this is something I wish had never happened to me. I would never do this to my own daughter. And it it destroyed me because I don't feel fully like a woman and I can't feel like a man either because I'm not a man. Uh, and I'm stuck in this hinterland almost. Um, and it affects me every day and it affects my thoughts and my marriage and my all of her existence. So it's very, very painful for some women. But then again, you have to consider, which also took me a while to figure out that Afghanistan is such an extreme environment. So the the list of, of concerns and fear and fears and crisis that you have in a war zone, there's so many things that come before yes. questions of gender, not to say that those are irrelevant, but for a person who who lives there and who may have had this experience, even for them, this may not be the biggest trauma. Chapter 2. The Feminism Awakening and Marriage Do you find that um, mothers who have, whose sort of desires and goals for themselves have been tamped down get pleasure and power emotionally from having sons? Because I feel that that's the case in Western culture as well. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you tell me because you're a, you're a mother of sons. Is that the status marker? You're like, I have the boys and like someone who, who brings along two girls. That's a, that's a bit more. No, it's it's different than that from that. Um, mothers of girls, I found like I, there was a there was a group of mothers who took their girls to a ballet class when our kids were all in preschool together. And I was sort of envied them. Uh going off to do this and the, you know, the mother-daughter closeness, because I'm very close to my mother. And I grew up in a sort of semi-matriarchy, I guess I would say. I have only a sister and a very strong mother. I have a father as well, but the mother was, got sort of, my mother's a writer and sort of got a lot of attention. And I saw what these girls, these sort of empowered girls had, which is so different, of course, from what you're describing going on in Afghanistan, and having boys, there was a way in which it was sort of described as kind of like, oh, they're wild and what can you do? These were very sexist ways of delineating. And yet, when the boys got older, I sometimes would see mothers kind of say, what can you do? Like about the boy, the boy had power. And I saw mothers sometimes be sort of excited by that. Um and it's a subtle thing. Maybe I'm speaking really more as a novelist than anything else. So you mean that the mothers 
uh, felt the, the 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 power of the male, and they some of that rubbed off on them as yeah, their absolutely. They as got the a mother, kick out of that. yeah, they like having that maleness around, even uh-huh. if it was maddening. Sometimes, right, like I created right? power. I basically. created power, huh. and even if I don't have power myself, um, this person. Right. Who I made. I'm in charge of that power. Exactly. Right. Um, well, you sometimes I, I, see that. No, I've seen that. No mothers-in-law mentioned or anything. No, no. Tell me about your early feminist awakening because I'm sure you had one of some kind, right? Yes, I really um, came of age when second wave feminism was a pretty big thing in the U.S. Um, you and Gloria Steinem, and oh yeah, Ms. Magazine and Gloria Steinem and all of that. And my mother, who's a writer had been a housewife and she'd not been to college because her parents didn't think it was important for their daughters to be educated. But she was very intelligent and had a real innate sense of the language of literature. And she became a writer, uh, having had no real training in it or no education in literature. And I watched her as her life just sort of emerged. And it was kind of amazing to see. And that was a period of time when there was so much attention to uh, the idea that women could do what they wanted, that they could, quote, have it all. And of course, it was very, very complicated because unlike in Sweden, I'm going out on a limb here because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm guessing that you have access to cheap and good quality childcare. Is that, mm-hmm. yeah, because we don't. I mean, childcare is a major issue that the women's movement did not solve. Uh tried but didn't i think you know we still it's still very very hard for women who have young children to sort of achieve their goals at jobs yeah. where they're kind how of how do you leave the house like tell tell the the uh, our listeners how it actually works here if you're a working mom well you have to have the money to put your child in some kind of program daycare program that you feel is safe and good and and of high quality and they're very very expensive or a lot of people have a babysitter or a nanny if they're wealthy. So you have to have, or you have a spouse who stays home, and sometimes that's the case. But if that's the case, then you're really dealing with one income. And people really need two incomes in most places, I think, to survive. It's so very, very expensive to raise children. So what is it like in Sweden? Um, well, there's uh, low-cost, high-quality daycare, and uh, beyond that, we have uh, quite a few other problems, of course, <laughs> with uh, then the fact that someone needs to pick up the children, and they're not there all day. Yeah. And I mean, it's not it's not a perfect system, but it is uh, substantially better, of course, than than having to arrange for it. Uh, no, it's very, very expensive. At a high cost. Get, but this and, was the same yeah. then, or this was even worse, of course, I presume, when you were younger, when you saw this happening in your own family. Well, my mother didn't leave the house. I mean, that's one of the things about being a writer, because I'm a writer, I'm married to a writer. So we stayed home when we raised our children. Mm -hmm. But for people who have jobs and want to be seen as uh, being really valuable to, say, a corporation, you have to sort of say, I give myself to you, corporation. And, you know, it's very, very painful. I I wrote a novel called The Ten-Year Nap that actually deals with some of these issues about what happens when your children go back to school, you've had this blissful period. Sometimes people leave work and, you know, raise their children. The children are then school age and they go back, try to go back to work. But the world has changed. The companies have moved on. Do you even want to work in that same way that you did? Um, you know, it's, it's really often about meaning and what is a meaningful life. 
And that's when you started to think about women's lives and what it's like for women if they want to actually get out of the house. Oh, absolutely. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. So my mother sort of showed it to me kind of, you know, on the job, like in my house, I watched that chrysalis take place, really. What kind of writer are you and were you? Did you always write and you had the great American novel in your drawer when you were 12? Or was it a more of a painful process? Are you a natural or are you a, a, a taught writer? Well, it sounds a little obnoxious to say I'm a natural, but I, I guess given a choice between those two, natural and taught, I, I, um, I always love to write. I always love to write. I always love to read. I always made up stories. I had um, a, a serial novel that I told myself on the way to school um, when I was very young. And it was about, interestingly, about two brothers who were the heirs to the craft cheese fortune. And they were very wealthy and one was bad and one was good. I mean, it, and I told myself this story walking to school. I was very lost in that. So I think I do come by it pretty naturally. But I did have a mother and do have a mother who showed me that this is something that you can do. And she basically never said to me, well, maybe you should find something to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So you never tried out plumbing or anything before you became a writer. You were always a writer. Well, plumbing, yes. No, plumbing, no. Nothing. I was always a writer. If I had to do it again... I would have liked to maybe be a psychoanalyst or go to medical school, but that's my next life. Deep dives into people's psyches. I think that that's what you do now, though. Well, I try. I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap, really, between writers and psychoanalysts. You really, really do try to approach interiority. You know, in your book, you're really talking about you, – you do both, actually, because you're looking at this phenomenon of these – girls in Kabul, but you also try to understand the effects psychologically and emotionally on what it means to cross-dress and to pretend and all of that. And I think for me, plot is like, you know, is the exterior and the interiority, the effects slowly, the glacial slow effects of marriage and uh, patriarchy and all kinds of cultural uh, stimuli is really the world that I traffic in. Okay, so I'm fascinated in that. Can I can I prod into your personal life now? Sure, go for it. How did you meet your husband? Well, um, since you're both writers and you you stay home and you have to stand each other a lot, and I presume you've been married for a while now. Yeah, really long Fire time. Fire away. How, how does that century. work? Well, and he, start with how you met. Okay, it's actually a kind of well interesting to us story, but he was my mother's student. Weirdly. So my mother, after becoming a writer and, and having some real success, um, taught at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, where I later taught the sort of fame. This is a famous graduate school program for people who become fiction writers and poets. Uh, and um, he was writing fiction at the time, and he was in her workshop. They became friendly. I, I'd heard his name over a period of years, but she didn't set us up or anything, but we met in a sort of social situation, I was teaching college, and both my mother and my husband, future husband, were living at, coincidentally, were at this uh, artist colony. Do you have artist colonies in Sweden, where you get to go live and they um, make your lunch? Yeah, that's all of Sweden, I feel like. Yes, <laughs> I do, too. For sure. They're, like, also state-subsidized. and yeah. You know, it's so amazing. Well, let's just say, whatever... We have, you have, but it's state subsidized. We pay a fortune for that things. That pretty much goes for yeah. everything. Yeah. Well, this actually you don't really pay for it. It's if you get in, um, they you. We lived in a 
wonderful mansion when I've done this. So, so he and my mother lived in, you know, were there at the same time at this artist colony. And I was living coincidentally in town teaching at a college. And we met over drinks. And that and was how old? How old was I? I was in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was great. It was great. And you know, it, having being married to a writer is um, one thing that I like about it is that you really know what the other person's talking about. There's not that you know when they talk about their work. There's not that quality where you sort of half listen when the spouse talks about hydraulics or whatever mm-hmm. it is the spouse might do. You really do know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been married now? 26 uh, years. 26 years. Okay, yeah. so here we go. How do you stand each other for 26 years? Let's talk about marriage. Scener ur ett äktenskap. Scenes from a marriage. Scenes from a marriage, yes. A, which I absolutely loved and was devastated by when I saw it when I was a teenager. I thought, oh my God, marriage, is it really like that? Is it really like that? I don't think mine is really like that. Um, look, every marriage, there's a great line. I think it might be Robert Louis Stevenson. I've never really found it, but um, marriage is a long conversation. And I think that's right. It is. It's a long conversation. And like all conversations, it can be boring. It can be fascinating. It changes over time. You're with the other person. You've cast your lot with them. If you love them, if they're interesting, if they make you laugh, um, I find it like you have this person who's on your side. It's so wonderful to me. I, I love it. Oh, so marriage um, is the topic, or it, it's the, at least the, the framework for, for the book that we're talking about, your latest book, which is called Hustrun in Swedish, The Wife, I yes. presume, right? The Wife. Um, and I read this uh, in one reading, and it made me angry, and I've been angry since. It's about a marriage. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the effect you want, right? Like yeah. you want to move someone. I want to talk about the the uh, how this idea the idea for this book was conceived. Was it with you for a long time or can you talk about how that came to you? I think it was with me for a long time. I think what happens with most novels is that the idea is sort of marinating inside you for a long time before you really know it. I mean, these were things I thought about and um didn't really articulate to myself in terms of fiction. But for instance, as the daughter of a mother who was a writer, she had sort of come to come into her own in a writing culture that also was very sexist, where men kind of strutted around. And it's, you know, there were a lot of the big mid-century male novelists. And there was a sort of acceptance that it was okay for them to be this way. It was like bad boys. There was that quality. Like the rock star writers. But even more than that, it's like you had a situation like Norman Mailer, who stabbed his wife oh, yes. and was not shunned, you know, just sort of went on as this famous writer. And they would get into kind of like near fisticuffs on talk shows. And we sort of the culture supported and was excited by that idea of kind of bad boy men who could misbehave and we they were rascals and they were obnoxious but they were brilliant so everybody should read them uh-huh so 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 men behaving badly and having these big passionate characters which would then translate into amazing works of fiction yeah i mean i got the sense really that men were allowed 
to be messy and big. And women, if they wanted to sort of get far in a literary world, more often than not, it was for kind of shapely books that were perhaps devastating, but not like big, sprawling, messy affairs for the most part. But isn't that how it is sometimes still, like the the the, the, uh, the male coming of age or, or, or awakening or, or midlife crisis? Or, I mean, there's certainly more now by female writers, but that's always been a big topic, I feel like, for, oh, for the male writer, whereas women have can, you know, maybe contain their stories a little bit more or not let that those kinds of lives even. Well, you know, Hustrun, am I pronouncing it okay, mm-hmm. begins in the 19th. Well, it, a lot of the book, much of the book takes place in the 1950s. So we have that kind of housewife culture that's very, very different now. But even so, I wanted to write a book that was relevant now. This isn't a historical book. I mean, it does go over time. Mm-hmm. And even though it was important to set it there, to sort of set it in relief and show how extreme it was. You know, we right now, we're going through um, an election year uh, in which Hillary Clinton, I feel, you know, is in a tough spot quite often because she has to be a certain way. Uh, right now, we're going through the primaries and Bernie Sanders, who is yelling about revolution, it's been pointed out in more than one essay and article that a woman can't yell about revolution. She's seen perhaps as shrill or loud. Crazy How, even. Crazy, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are the options for women in writing, in politics, in the world? I mean, they're... they're mm-hmm. You become aware of the constraints, absolutely, even now in 2016. Right. And then you're right back in Afghanistan where Ab- the male norm is so per- pervasive that you have to, in our society, uh, at least that's where you have to start. And then you have to infuse a little bit of femininity in order not to be too uh, right. too masculine. You have to calibrate it. Too. Yeah, absolutely. But back to your book. So you create this 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 force of a man a real character and and with all the 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 classic behaviors that come with it and also with a terrible uh sense of self right well this was the character of joe castleman the the husband of the wife um is a big bloated male novelist a big mid-century novelist who i've invented and it was a lot of fun to do that but one of the things that made it particularly fun in this book is that unlike my other novels uh, most of them, this one is in first person. So his wife, his hustrun, Joan, is narrating the book. And she doesn't have to be objective. She's not. She's very angry. She's telling the story of a marriage. But she's telling it very much from her point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a kind of spoiled person. But again, marriage is a long conversation. And more than that, um, marriages are a contract between people. And it's not, you know, I tell myself when I write novels, I I like to know what I'm writing about. They're not just about characters or about situational or, or about place. For me, they're about ideas. And then almost immediately, the, the characters really sort of come into being. And for me, this was a novel about male power and female complicity. Chapter 3 Bad boys and good girls, salty and sweet snacks. I just want to mention one of my, uh, when I first started to get angry, because first I was entertained, you know, that this was a, mm-hmm. it was a great setup, but it was in an academic environment. Um, and uh, they, 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 they begin, they meet by, by having an affair. Mm-hmm. 
And then the the first time uh, they have sex, uh, he he wants you know he's about to say something, and she thinks that she's he's going to say something you know something romantic, something loving, but he wants to ask her opinion on his writing, <laughs> right. And that's when you just set the tone for the whole thing. And it's like, okay, off we go. Like, now we know what this is going to be about. Mm-hmm. Because the fragile ego and, and the reassurance that this man needs is just, that's, what, that's what's happening now. And in a way, I'm also a little ashamed to say that I, I feel for him. I like him. He's, yeah. he's small. He's, he's so insecure. And it's like he's, it's, he's just not doing oh, it right. Oh, me too. I so mean, I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost take this, I almost become the wife. And I'm like, of course I can tell you that. If that's what you need, you know, what else, what else can I do for you to make you feel better? What is it in me that creates that reaction? And can we take that out of me? I mean, do you, do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do know what you're talking about. It's both dangerous and makes you human. I mean, it's a complicated thing. I don't want to say it's a female thing because I wouldn't deign to say that. I don't, I think any sentence that begins, women are anything, is going to run into danger pretty, pretty quickly. Um, unless it's women are owners of uteri. I don't know. But uh, I think that for me as, okay, there's sort of two strands here. For me as a writer, my characters can't be caricatures they have to actually have some kind of humanity in them that makes them a little bit multidimensional. And to make him only boorish and only exhausting would, uh, you know, would be a narrower book. So he has to have some things that where we see why she's drawn to him. But if we see why she's drawn to him, then you're going to be drawn to him too. But that's the catch then about women and men, because it's like what I was saying about Norman Mailer, this notion, if you're a charming rascal who does horrible things, like, why do we put up with it? You know, oh, that- this is so brilliant. You do this so well. You you come into the book and, and this man angers you. And then you are also a little bit, you can at least you can see yourself through her falling for him. You have to be able to, I think otherwise, it's not a novel. It's a polemic. It's a tract. I'm not a a journalist, and I'm not a polemicist, and I'm not a nonfiction writer in any way. I mean, it's so interesting to talk to you today. Uh, again, investigative journalist. I'm so jealous. Uh, I'm just sort of like a liar. <laughs> That's sort of what I am. I'm just sort of telling this Which story. comes out as more true than much of what uh, I produce. Well, because what you, well, I don't know about that, but what you do when you write a novel, I think, I mean, well, I have a lot of feelings and theories and ideas about novels, which is perhaps for another time. But uh, what a novel can do is tell the truth about how people live. I mean, or or sometimes I say that a novel is a snapshot of a moment in time. Sometimes the moment is sort of extending because when we talk about sexist culture or misogyny or ways in which women's lives and possibilities are narrower than men's, um, we really are talking about something that's ongoing. So the character, the female character, the wife, I also wonder how you create her falling for him. How how does she do this? Is she just young? This is something that happens to you. She falls into this. Or is she, which is my whole theme here, is she complicit from the very beginning? I think both are true. Uh, she's his student. He's the young professor 
who all the girls, and they're called girls, really, love. And he gets special dispensation, which is sort of how it was, and to some degree how it still might be. And right away, he's charming and can almost do no wrong, and she wants to please him. I think the idea of really, I want, well, one thing that females in the society do have the option to do is to be a good girl. And there is that, you know, we say actually, the, oh, I was just thinking now, we know the phrase bad boy, but we also know the phrase good girl. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't, the reverse we don't know as well. Well, and the two of them go together, right? They That's go together, the right. sort of sexual dynamic. But you know, when they go together, I think it's because nobody is all one thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs something from the other person. Mm-hmm. That's why those, I don't know if the salty and sweet craze has hit Sweden, but all kinds of snacks now have to be salty. I think that's an American thing, but is I, it, well, yes, I'm with it's you. It's a weird thing, it's an, but it's a genius American thing. It is because it's getting to the notion that what we want, we always want a little more of something that's not ourselves. Um so you might like to be around a man who acts like a boor if you feel you can't, because we all have boorishness in us with a potential for it, but maybe we don't enact it. So I think that she's both very excited by him and he's very, oh, he admires her early on. And that's something I think that everybody wants. But so um, moving deeper into the, the, the marriage of the wife and the husband, I want to circle back to this big question that I have and, and the reason for my my anger. Uh, which is, in in what ways are we complicit? When she first meets her 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 future husband, we talk about the dynamic between them and and how uh, she admires him, obviously, and then he gives her a little bit back, and then somehow that works for them. And then her anger is building. She manages it. Uh, eventually, she becomes very angry, but then. She gets something out of this. Like she's, this works for her. She is does doesn't only, you know, encourage, uh, obeys. Uh, she she actively also pursues this dynamic. Oh, absolutely. I think that for women who are with very powerful men, there's something that they really, really can get from it. Sometimes it's really because it's the only way into the corridors of power. That may be actually true because, Mm -hmm. you know, we do live in a very sexist society. Things have gotten a lot better. I want to say, I feel like I have to put a little asterisk. In a lot of ways, they have gotten a lot better. But sometimes it's like an optical illusion because you see so much terribleness going on in the world and violence against women everywhere, including in the U.S. Uh, and a, a certain kind of disrespect, just mm-hmm. even on a kind of more nuanced level. So, but that's one re- reason then that, that where you could say, you could still go back and blame the patriarchy. Like it's the only way for a woman or one of very few avenues for women to 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 reach actual power. It's through a man, Right. Well, it depends on the world. I mean, again, there are examples, there are exceptions to all of these things. And there are powerful women there in the world. Absolutely. Many powerful women in the world. I I think that that's true. But since this still is going on, I I don't think this would happen, what happens in the book. And again, I feel like I'm speaking in code because I don't want to sort of give away what really does happen in the book. But I guess you'll have to read it to find out, listeners. But um I don't think this book could be set now and have the same meaning, but I think that it was important to set it when I do set it, but to show it happen over time and the character of Joan, the narrator, the wife, really getting used to the deal 
that she's struck, the bargain that she's struck. And it does make sense still for her over time. And it becomes easier. Is she responsible for what happens to herself? Absolutely. So she had, yeah, she has, there's a, an element of, of choice and, and personal oh, yes. responsibility. And maybe also some of that, um, that old theory that the submissive is really the dominant in some ways. Yes. Oh, you know, there's often a kind of almost a condescending sort of jokey thing that goes on where powerful men say, my wife is really the one who controls everything. But no, she doesn't. I mean, you like to say that, but uh, a friend of mine said, said something that has sort of struck me with great interest, which is, and I'm putting it in a novel that I'm writing now, which is that men give women the power that they themselves don't want. And I wonder mm. if that's sometimes true, like what in a domestic, well, like in a domestic life, if the wife rules the household and is the one who knows where the children, oh, I see, who right. the children's friends right. are and you teachers can have are this and, little corner, right, right, right. The man doesn't want it, but you know what? Women really do control their destinies and fates in in many places in the world. I hope, um, in other places they don't. And this book, I hope, is sort of trying to show how far we've come, and in some other ways, how not far at all. Well, it is a very powerful story, and I also hear that there's a movie happening here. Yes, uh, I'm very excited about it. Actually, it's, um, I hope, going to uh, shoot in your part of the world. Uh, in uh, We have a, it's a part Swedish production, and uh, a Swedish mm-hmm. production, I guess, uh, with... Um, a screen, an American screenwriter, and uh, I'm very excited about it. I hope it happens. And and you have a female lead already? Yes, Glenn Close. Ooh. I know. Very, very excited. Have you met her? I did meet her, yes. I went backstage at a and place what was she, she was like? in New York. She's great. She, of course, she's wonderful. I could see her in this part. Although, when you're writing a novel, you really... Um, I feel like I, I don't know who... The characters don't have faces. They have blurry faces to me. But then I met Glenn Close, and it's like, you'll do. Oh, <laughs> She's great. Yeah, She's yeah. wonderful. I, I saw her um, in a cafe in the West Village a few years ago, and, and she's just so exquisite. She's, she's so beautiful. beautiful. She's a beautiful skin and face, and a kind of a luminous look, but a very strong face too, which is mm-hmm. great. Because Joan is a strong character, despite everything. Very strong. My last question to you, are you, the world of a writer is so strange because it's, it's like you're, you're a fashion designer, you're a few seasons ahead already. Can you say anything about where you are at this very moment? Are you like posting sticky notes all over your walls or are you taking a break? Are you on book tour? Oh, I don't like, ever what take other a people break. May we meet I don't, in the future? I don't ever, okay, here's where I am. And then I want to ask the same of you. Um, I uh, am almost done with a novel that deals with female power. Uh, so now we have a powerful woman in this book, mm-hmm. although maybe we did in the last one, in that one too. Um, but it's it's been exciting. I, I still, I guess, return to these ideas about men and women and how we live because it's like the world is made up of men and women and it's what I see. It's I live with a man. I look around at the world. I, I'm sort of interested in writing about um, geometries that take place in families, uh, between the genders, uh, between generations. So I'm sort of trying to do that again. And I also have a television show about to shoot of a novel of mine called The Interestings. So that's pretty exciting. So I'm going to sort of 
go to the set and see that while finishing my novel. So that's just so good. You're the fantasy of a New York writer oh, on God. the Upper West Side, and <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe to some people, maybe about three people. And how about you? Where are you right now? Um, where am I? I got up at three a.m., so I'm I'm in, I'm I'm not exactly clear on my mission ahead at the moment. Um, but I'm teaching uh, a new course at um, NYU downtown. Um, on it's called International Investigations, uh, which I'm pretty excited about right. with all twelve people who are much smarter than I am. <laughs> so that'd be good. And I do have some some vague potential uh, new projects. Um, I was in Iran a few weeks ago. That was very interesting. Uh, so um, just one one more country when you come in blind and don't quite understand what's going I on. I didn't even ask you, and I feel bad about it, about the bravery aspect or the or the. There's no aspect. bravery involved. The bravery is all the people who are there and who can't go anywhere. Yes, I have that's my, absolutely true. Yeah. I have a, a European passport and an American green card, and that's you can the, leave. The, the most yeah. luxurious setup you can have in the world, especially considering what's going on today when everybody wants to get out of certain places. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for saying that. Okay, Meg, this has been great for me because I got to meet an actual New York writer. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, I want to keep talking when we turn off the microphones. I would like to say that that was all from today's episode of Speaking of Stories. I'm Jenny Nordberg. And I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thank you. You can hear all of our episodes on iTunes or via Acast. 